I'm Josh Kramer, Regional Director for AJC New York. More than one in five American Jews have been victims of anti-Semitism. No Jew should live in fear. At AJC New York, we work closely with diplomats, elected officials, and community leaders throughout New York City. Our work has resulted in tangible successes, from pushing Holocaust education legislation through at the state level to the creation of the Mayor's Office for the Prevention of Hate Crimes. AJC has always sought out the boldest opportunities for the Jewish people and taken on our community's toughest challenges. Today, AJC stands as the most influential and transformational force advocating for Jews around the globe. Our work is so crucial and your support so vital. AJC is taking on Jew hatred from all sides and working to build a brighter Jewish future. Together, we must step up our efforts in 2023. Your gift will help us continue to tackle rising anti-Semitism, open doors to and for Israel, and advance democratic values. Step off the sidelines and make it clear what you are willing to fight for. Visit AJC.org donate, or you can text AJC donate to 52886. That's AJC space donate to 52886. Every dollar you donate will be doubled. You can also find this information in our show notes. Welcome to People of the Pod, brought to you by American Jewish Committee. Each week, we take you beyond the headlines to help you understand what they all mean for America, Israel, and the Jewish people. I'm your host, Manya Brashear-Pashman. In 2019, the New York Muslim Jewish Advisory Council, which AJC New York is a part of, called for the creation of a New York City office for the prevention of hate crimes. That office, now known as the OPHC, opened later that year, just before a fatal stabbing at a Hanukkah party in Muncie, New York, an incident that struck fear in the Jewish community citywide, if not nationwide. Executive Director of OPHC, Hassan Navid, is with us now to discuss solutions, what the city of New York has been doing to curb the rise of anti-Semitic hate crimes, and the importance of tracking these crimes accurately to inform those efforts. Hassan, welcome to People of the Pod. Thank you so much, Manya. So before we begin, can you kind of explain in a nutshell for our listeners the role your office plays? It's apart from the New York Police Department. It's apart from the other agencies. What is OPHC and what does it do? OPHC is a new office. It was formed in 2019. And as you said earlier, it's something that the community, right, community organizations throughout the city were like, we want a dedicated office within the city of New York that seeks to coordinate hate crime response and hate crime prevention efforts. We have so many city agencies across the city. You can imagine the Department of Education, the New York City Police Department, uh, the Department of Youth and Community Development. Many of these agencies run programs that directly relate to issues that pertain to building community, cultivating community, social cohesion, 
that work towards also addressing a variety of different biases and stuff? How can we better coordinate and also have a comprehensive and consistent strategy across the board? And so this was an intentional decision on part of the community and then the city itself to be able to say, listen, we want someone to be able to, one, coordinate the city's response with all these city agencies, and then also work towards community-based intervention on hate crime prevention and hate crime response. And that for us involves a number of community organizations throughout the city that we fund that are doing programs that are happening on the ground uh, that really seek to, uh, of course, hate crime prevention and also seek to really build community within neighborhoods itself, within the sense of building this sense of cohesion within folks? How can we work towards resolving conflict through conversation? How can we de-escalate certain things? And so that's sort of a nutshell of our work. I do think it's important with sort of my role and my office's role. We're also working with those very organizations that are concerned about hate, bias, discrimination, bullying, and we're coordinating their concerns through these various city agencies, creating this conversation. I think with us looking towards trying to really combat anti-Semitism and combat hate, we have to have a comprehensive approach. There has to be obviously the law enforcement approach, and then there also has to be community. And I think by the city making the effort and really investing in this, it's important. And it shows you know, how New York is really taking... You know, community-based approaches to also fighting hate. Does anything about your personal background inspire you to do this work? My work is my passion. This area of civil rights, this area of human rights, of dignity, of respecting each other, this passion for diversity, you know, comes from my growing up experience, right? I'm a first-generation Pakistani-American born in Los Angeles, now a diehard New Yorker. And in my experience, even being in that position post-9-11 is something that shaped my perspective, but also has made it so much more um, important for me to be able to ensure that we all are collectively um, living in a society that doesn't have hate, doesn't have discrimination, doesn't have bullying. I know I may not see it in my lifetime, but I think that we can plant the seeds for that direction. And it's not just about me. I look to the people that I work with on a daily in the community, in my office, who have that same commitment that also drives me so much more, because I couldn't imagine doing it without those folks being my mentors through this process as well. So there have been a lot of anti-Semitic attacks. Many have made headlines in New York this year and last. On Sunday, even, in Brooklyn, attackers chased and taunted a group of Jewish teens while firing a taser gun. Just a few weeks ago, two men were arrested at Penn Station for making online threats to attack a local synagogue. But what's the big picture? I mean, these are examples. What do the numbers look like so far in 2022, and how do they compare to 2021? Yeah, and so I think that with here, first of all, those incidents were absolutely horrible. And that sort of situation is something that we don't accept here in New York City at all. When it comes to data itself, I always tell folks when it comes to hate crime data, and this is also within the larger academia too that exists out there and within the practice too, is that these numbers that we're seeing are underreported. And we have to look at it in that particular way. Even when it comes to 
any of those particular communities. It's underreported. Some folks may not feel like it rises to a hate crime. There's other trending issues that might make it difficult for folks to be able to want to be put into that vulnerable position of reporting or may not feel comfortable, right? And so I think when we look at the data, we have to understand that we are seeing a snapshot of a much deeper issue. And if you look around ourselves and you see the current circumstances that we're in, right, and how that could be feeding in to this larger sort of hate construct, it is something that obviously plays in with each other itself. And so we're really looking at the work that OPHC does is enhancing the system of government to be able to meet the needs of how things are currently going on. We have this issue with proliferation of disinformation in social media that is absolutely scary because, I mean, the impact that it has on people and the potential part of radicalization it can have is something that, you know, we have to start addressing as a larger society. And this is stuff that some of our partners on the ground have been doing for a long time. And we want to be able to work with some of our community organizations to be able to bring some of those skills to the table to other communities as well, too. Well, given the deficiency in the FBI report, the gross underreporting, the community-based data seems even more imperative, even more important. I know AJC will continue doing its own annual report on the state of anti-Semitism in America. And in fact, to your point, Hassan, about underreporting, that the 2021 survey found that 79% of people do not report when they're victims of anti-Semitism. But they know. They know. The community knows. And that's what fuels the fear. It's very real. That's consistent with also what the city has found with relation to the city's Commission on Human Rights and and their report that looks into communities when it comes to reporting. And then it's also consistent with the Department of Justice's own offices that have done research around this that have consistently shown that there is underreporting and that we have to be able to function with that variable through the course of our work. And just because we may see the numbers go down, it doesn't necessarily mean that the work suddenly slows down. This is stuff that continues to keep on going. So speaking of underreporting, we are having this conversation the same week that the FBI released its 2021 hate crime statistics, which is you know kind of this annual aggregate of data from thousands of agencies across the country. But there were thousands of agencies left out of this year's report, including major cities like New York. From your perspective, is it problematic for New York hate crime statistics to not be included in that national kind of aggregate? I couldn't answer it because I don't know, one, why NYPD didn't submit it. And so, I mean, that's a decision that was made part of PD. So I'd, I'd feel comfortable if they were to answer that. What I can say is this, but not responding to that question, but a general point towards data, as I said before, the more data, the better. And we do look at data in other cities and we do look at data as it relates to other community-based organizations in other cities. We have to do the work that we do in an informed way, right? And that's why it's so important for us to be able to rely on these different sources of data. The NYPD collects data extremely well and very, very organized. And also it has that element of where they visualize the data. Even that in itself, for it to be a map visual helps us 
right, including the partners, the community-based organizations that I work with, see where there are potential hotspots. And then also compare that to what the community says and look to see what bullying data says or what discrimination data looks like. There's so much out there that speaks to like bias in general in which everything should be considered in relation of us doing this sort of work. And then figuring out what sorts of programs and policies we want to work towards to mitigate those biases that we're seeing. I mean, example, like every time there's an incident, we know that that one incident itself has rippling effects on communities across that area. Like what happened in Muncie is an absolute tragedy, right? And it had such an effect on folks in Brooklyn and other parts of the city that identified with the community. And so in those instances, we also know that there is this proliferation of social media information out there that is just disinformation. And how do we work towards making sure that those curious minds in some of the schools, the students, et cetera, that are witnessing this situation take place, they may not be Jewish, but they're wondering what's happening, why is it happening, what resources that they can go to. When I say we work with these community organizations, including yours, we're putting resources and working with all of your organizations to be able to make sure that these students have the appropriate resources to go to. And the teachers also have the facilitation skills to be able to really facilitate these challenging conversations, right? We need to come to a point in society where we have to be able to have some of these challenging conversations. And I think that with us working towards our office in particular, building those spaces out, providing the necessary resources and information that's appropriate among just the melee of stuff that's out there, you know, is a good step. There's obviously more that needs to happen down the line. You speak of New York's data collection. I mean, it does seem really thorough, really comprehensive and detailed. And it's a shame that it was not included in the national aggregate. Of course, New York was not alone. The FBI indicated this year's report excluded other major cities, including Los Angeles, where the Jewish community is quite large. And it pointed to the lack of training. The FBI pointed to the lack of training and resources to transition to this new national incident-based reporting system. This leads me to my next question. One of the benefits of this, what's called the NIBRS system, is that it requires more specificity in the collection of information. For example, it collects details about victims, about the offenders, about the relationship between victims and offenders. We're talking about the relationships between the victims and the offenders. You know, there are historic tensions. There are contemporary tensions between communities. For example, in some parts of Brooklyn, there's of a simmering tension about gentrification. And much of the violence against American Jews in 2021 stemmed from pro-Palestinian offenders who were holding American Jews responsible for the tensions in the Middle East. Are these kinds of relationship dynamics taken into consideration when you do this kind of prevention work? Oh, yeah, absolutely. These sort of relationship dynamics are very important in ensuring that we're cultivating and building community. And so, you know, I, I look towards one of our community partners, the Jewish Community Relations Council of New York City. They run a fellowship. It's called We Are All Brooklyn. And this is something that our office is supporting. And it's a program that really seeks to bring fellows from all over the city, different sectors, different communities, different cultures, different faith communities, et cetera, 
to really begin planting the seeds of a network of folks who can really work towards addressing these larger community issues. These folks that are fellows are people that are leaders in their own communities themselves. And so I think that like that's one example of us looking at, well, there's a dynamic, you know, these relationships, how can we work towards resolving these larger ones, these larger issues? And that's one particular program that has been doing that. And then as it relates to, you know, some stuff that we have done internally, like we've worked with communities to be able to prioritize what some safety issues that they want to work on to be able to facilitate those conversations. We've also worked with communities to identify problems and issues and how we can best triage those things. And if they are something that end up, you know, crossing into like these social dynamics, how can we best work towards alleviating that tension? There was a summit this week in New York on anti-Semitism, and your boss, Mayor Eric Adams, spoke at this summit. And I want to take a moment and listen to what he had to say about prosecuting those who perpetrate hate crimes. We have to be very clear to those who spew hate. There should be a no plea bargaining rule if you are arrested for hate crimes. I don't believe we have one person who has been arrested for a hate crime that served time in jail. That is unacceptable. That sends the wrong message. It states that hate is acceptable. So I'd like to talk a little bit more about, you know, there were crimes against American Jews in May 2021 during the conflict between Israel and the terrorists in Gaza. And one of the perpetrators of that violence just recently pleaded guilty to federal hate crime conspiracy charges. He seriously injured two men, one wearing a yarmulke, the other wearing a Star of David. And that seems to be what Mayor Adams is speaking to, these perpetrators of crimes, that they should be held accountable. I mean, I imagine this proclamation that he made was developed somewhat in consultation with your office. Yeah, and the mayor sets policy. And what's important for us is to be able to ensure that the laws are something that are being enforced in a way where they're meeting the intention of them. The fact is that we've had situations where people have committed these sorts of crimes and they're not being held accountable. And, you know, the mayor has set that standard. And I think it's something that we should absolutely move forward with. The numbers don't look good. And the numbers have continued not to look good. And the many years before us, it's only been an increase. My office was the first office created of its kind, right, that sought to really coordinate these responses. Now we're seeing as the numbers are increasing in New York and as they're increasing the United States and even the world, what we're noticing is that there's other state institutions now that are looking to develop an office like ours, to be able to address this stuff proactively, but also in a responsive way, too. And in fact, this this seems like a, a good example of how data informs policy change and new measures and additional staffing. That's the importance of this accurate information, as accurate as we can get it, at least. Are you in conversations with other agencies like the NYPD um, about providing just more up-to-date information as soon as possible? I mean, in other words, just as this trend of underreporting, as this phenomenon of underreporting exists, I guess what efforts are being made to just get it closer to accurate, this information? That really runs to a lot of the efforts that we, the city, as well as the NYPD do in getting folks to report. And I think with that, one, it's really trying to address some of the myths 
that come with reporting. For example, that, you know, if you speak a particular language by calling 911, you know, you may not be able to have that individual, like there's no translator there. Well, in fact, there is a translator there, right? Another thing is that, you know, with relation to people's immigration status, right, that may make them feel like they don't want to. So these are other issues that we are constantly working with. And we engage with communities to be able to understand those issues and seek out outward facing campaigns that seek people to go and report their hate crimes and report incidents that they believe are a hate crime. And so I think that like that's sort of what we've taken an approach on. And what we've noticed through the course of our work is that we have been seeing an increase in reporting, but we've also seen a lot of ethnic media within the city also begin to really carry this message of reporting to their communities as well too, right? We engaged with AAPI media in various attempts to be able to spread the word about the importance of reporting. And so that's what we've been doing with the police department, and it's an entire city effort. So we keep saying it takes more than a response from law enforcement. And as we like to say at AJC, it's about understanding and preventing anti-Semitism, not just responding to it. Your office, of course, focuses on prevention as well. So besides working with law enforcement on suitable consequences, what else is your office doing? So one of the major initiatives that our office has been working on in the last couple of years has been our Partners Against the Hate Initiative. And this is something that Mayor Adams feels really strongly about in our approach towards combating hate crimes. Again, we want something to be comprehensive and coordinated. It has to include the law enforcement component. It also has to include the community-based component. And so the Partners Against the Hate Initiative is working with community organizations on the ground to provide funding on various different programs that seek to address issues related to hate bias, discrimination, bullying, but also are seeking to be able to build community cohesion, build empathy, meet people where they're at, learn about each other's narratives and stories. And so one of the programs that I had mentioned earlier that I wanted to bring back was that the Jewish Community Relations Council does this fellowship called We Are All Brooklyn that has been something that is quite powerful, that seeks to bring people from the nonprofit, private, and various different sectors and leaders in their own communities to come and really explore the impact of hate on communities overall and how they can collectively work with each other to be able to address these issues united. Because what's important about the PATH program is it is representative of the city's diversity. We have folks that represent LGBTQ communities on there. We have folks that represent the cross intersection between LGBTQ and Jewish communities, as well as Muslim, as well as Latino communities, as well as any API communities across the board to be able to really have these folks really function, right, as an arm of these sort of ambassadors of peace and being able to work with each other, building that community dynamic, and then also putting programs in the community itself that seek to like really address stuff like upstander training which happens, some of our organizations do upstander training or self-defense courses that are conducted throughout our things. And one other thing is when we had these incidents take place that were anti-Semitic or even anti-AAPI, we actually went to those various communities 
And we ended up canvassing and walking around, talking to businesses, engaging with folks that are there to push out information, but also see what are some of the issues in which we can improve safety in that particular area. Are there things that pertain to like lights or cameras or depending on the incident, if it's a house of worship, do we need to be able to provide a protecting house of worship programming there, right? Whatever it might be be able to address their needs. And even the schools in those areas will engage with them too, because our approach also has to be a level of targeted intervention too. Do you ever convene communities that are not getting along, where, where there are existing tensions to try to work these things out? You know, our office is grounded in really ensuring that we are mitigating conflict, that we're working towards a facilitated, respected dialogue as we come to resolution, right? And so when it comes to us encountering those sorts of dynamics that exist, and, you know, they could be anything from, you know, a community internally wanting assistance and being able to prioritize its, you know, hate crime programming based on the needs, based on everything else, all the way to like a conflict between two stakeholders in which there's been certain like racial epithet or utilized in which both parties have agreed to sit down and figure out a civil way of doing stuff. These are things that we take on a case-by-case basis. And these are things that we take based on the circumstances that are in the situation. But we want to be able to meet those conflict issues and seek, you know, some resolve for them too. Well, Hassan, thank you so much for all of the work you do and for joining us to discuss where we are at this point in time. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Now it's time for our occasional closing segment, Shabbat Table Talk. And with Hanukkah just a few days away, we have invited a special guest. With us today is one of the original voices of the Jewish a cappella group 613, Mike Boxer. Mike, welcome to People of the Pod. Thanks for having me. So you and your group seem to have created a new Hanukkah tradition. It's the YouTube video that everyone shares around the holiday We all marvel at the insanely creative lyrics, and this year is no different, right? What is this year's release? Will you be coming up with something new? We've decided to make it an Elton Jonica. Every year, we have to do something we didn't do before. And we're so thankful that this tradition has gone on long enough that we've got to, you know, knock off a lot of our, you know, favorite artists off that bucket list, so to speak. So we finally made our way around to Elton John, who is relevant again this year. The guy is in his 70s and winding down his performing career, but still managing to crank out, you know, Billboard Top 40 tunes with 20-year-old counterparts. So we were fortunate to hit while the iron was hot. So we took some of his classic stuff and Hanukkahized it. And that's what you'll see when you tune in this year. 
So my daughter loves the Dua Lipa duet with Elton John singing Tiny Dancer. And I'm a huge Elton John fan myself. Would you believe I saw him on stage in Vegas at my bachelorette party? So I am a huge, huge fan. So tell me, what is the background of you and your troop mates? Are you singers, musicians, musical improvisers? What kind of training do you bring to this? I think the the shorter description would be, what aren't we? We are a really ragtag bunch of people from all different walks of life, you know, not just professionally where, you know, some of us have nine to fives in an office and, you know, live a secret life as Jewish acapella singers. You know, others of us are teachers and others of us are full-time musicians, you know, working the freelance circuit and 613 is just one cog in that wheel, but also Jewishly, you know, in that we have people who are orthodox, you know, going from the frummer variety to the, you know, the more modern variety, conservative, reform, unaffiliated, traditional, you know, it's always been like that, you know, even when people have left and new people have joined, we've always just had a very healthy mix. And as they say, you know, it, it looks like Judaism in America. And somehow we haven't all killed each other yet. And, you know, we're very thankful for that, too. I would say, though, I would presume that there is one common thread that you all share, and that is Jewish pride, even if the level of observance is varied, would that be the case? I mean, could you be a part of this group and not have a little bit of Jewish pride? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, there are plenty of performance venues for you as a human being. You know, you can join another acapella group or band or start your own or whatever the case may be. There are thousands of acapella groups, you know, in the United States alone. And, you know, post-collegiate is a smaller number, but still plenty. So, you know, if you didn't have a neshamic connection, if that's, I'm going to make a new word, to being Jewish and to growing up Jewish and to the traditions and to the observances or whatever that means for you, you wouldn't be doing this. You have to really like Judaism because every song we do is about Judaism. And even the songs that aren't about Judaism, we make them about Judaism. So everybody there has got that spark inside of them. And and you're absolutely right. That is the common thread. So you mentioned kids, and I mentioned my kids. They love watching these videos every year. It really gets us into the spirit and in a very cool contemporary way. And it also teaches them a thing or two about Hanukkah. And so I'm curious how many of 613's members have children of their own and you know how this side hobby of celebrating has worked its way into family life. I've got three. Only two of them are really old enough to understand what's going on or or actually even talk. But uh, Craig's got two of the cutest little ones you've ever seen. And for me, it makes me like awesome dad of the year because as far as they're concerned, I am famous. And, you know, they go to a Jewish day school. They attend the Heschel School in Manhattan. And, you know, when it comes around Hanukkah time, especially as it's coming up on the break and kids start to get restless, there are a lot of Hanukkah videos being shown in the classroom not just at Heschel, but of course at other schools too. You know, they used to have to say, hey, that's my dad actually. And and now they're there a few years and they go like, hey, everybody, look, it's Max and Ruby's dad. That's where it really gives back to us, you know, because other than getting to go on the road and getting paid to do what we love, there's also something that really means a lot to us, which is like what you just said, which is actually getting to, you know, do a little bit of education. This started out as a marketing vehicle where it was like, hey, You know, this is the new paradigm. You put a video up, you hope it goes viral. You know, that's how you get your name out there. And then people call you up and they want to book you. But what we started getting was emails that would say like, hey, you're making it just that much cooler to be Jewish and it's fun. And we can tell that you guys are having fun and it makes us feel more comfortable. And then the occasional email where it's like, hey, 
I'm in the middle of Nebraska and I'm one of five Jewish kids in my whole town and I always feel out of place. But now like this thing is going on and it just made me feel so much happier and more comfortable and it brought me closer to the traditions and or I'm a Hebrew school teacher and I used your video because it taught them things and the kids actually pay attention. So seeing stuff like that happen and feeling that we are actually contributing to the picture of what it's like to be a Jew in America, that's amazing. It feels amazing. And, you know, it makes us really fulfilled. And do you do bar mitzvahs and synagogue services? Where else can people see you live? More than we can count. You know, we've kind of got this double existence where a number of times a year, you know, 30, 40 times a year, we're getting called out to some synagogues that, hey, we would like you guys to come perform on Hanukkah as a treat for our community, or we would like to come and have you perform on a random Sunday in October because we want to raise money for the synagogue. And, you know, we get up there and we get on stage and, you know, we act like rock stars for an hour. And then there is a totally different existence where we're coming to someone simcha, often on Shabbat, because what better way to stay in line with the prohibitions, you know, of instruments and such than hiring an acapella group. You know, we are singing with bar and bat mitzvah boys and girls doing services, either backing them up or, you know, with them or kind of as an addition. We're singing at luncheons and kiddishes and things like that. You know, we've got the private sector and the public sector. And uh, between those, you know, we're keeping really busy. Thank God. Well, happy Hanukkah to you. I hope you have a wonderful festival of lights with your family and can't wait to hear the rest of Elton Janica. Thanks. And same to you and to all your listeners. As we approach this year's Festival of Lights, People of the Pod is opening up its hotline once again to hear from you. Our question, how do you decorate for Hanukkah? Do you hang blue and white lights from your trees, inflate a 40-foot menorah, or just light eight candles and leave the decorating to the Christmas crowd? Call 212-891-1336 and leave a voicemail of two minutes or less. Be sure to include your name, where you're calling from, and why you choose to decorate the way you do. That's 212-891-1336. Be sure to find a quiet space before you call. We look forward to hearing your answers on the next episode of People of the Pod. If you missed last week's episode, be sure to tune in for my conversation with three young professionals from Israel, Morocco, and America about their travels together and the progress they've already witnessed from Israel and Morocco's renewed relationship. Thank you for listening. This episode is brought to you by AJC. Our producer is Atara Lakritz. Our sound engineer is TK Broderick. You can subscribe to People of the Pod on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. Or learn more at AJC.org slash People of the Pod. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC. 
We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at peopleofthepod at ajc.org. If you've enjoyed this episode, please be sure to tell your friends, tag us on social media with hashtag peopleofthepod, and hop on to Apple Podcasts to rate us and write a review to help more listeners find us. Tune in next week for another episode of People of the Pod. 